Uh, Would you pray with me as we prepare to hear from the Lord in his word? Let's pray. We're grateful, God, that you speak. We're grateful for the book that you have given to us, the Bible, your word. We're grateful that it points us to your son. And we're grateful that it has the power, because your Holy Spirit breathed it out, the power to actually transform us, to awaken us from death and bring us to life. Lord, it is by your word that we live each day. And I pray now that as we open your word together, that we would hear from you, that your living and active word would take hold in our minds and in our hearts and bring bring about that which ultimately glorifies you, the obedience of faith. So we pray even through a mere man, that you would accomplish your work now. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Maybe you have wondered if this pandemic, I know it's a word that, boy, once we get past this year, we'll probably never want to hear that word again. And COVID, there's all sorts of words that have entered our vocabulary and coronavirus that we'd like to be done away with. But in the reality of this time, I wonder if, as you've thought about this pandemic, if this is God's judgment on the world. Has that crossed your mind, I wonder? Yes, God promised to Noah not to send a flood again to judge the world, but he didn't say anything about an invisible microbe, did he? And maybe in your mind you've thought, well, maybe we've just gone too far. The stench of our sin has risen up to God's nostrils and he's letting us know that enough is enough. Now, if that's crossed your mind, it's crossed my mind. You're not alone. In fact, anytime bad things happen, people begin to wonder if it's God's punishment for particular sins a tsunami or an earthquake, a hurricane, a tornado. If God is in control, and and he is, is this his judgment? Well, I've heard this, and, and I've thought this. And as I was thinking about this, I was drawn to a passage in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to invite you to turn there with me. Where where some people approached Jesus and asked him about a horrible thing that had happened. Now, now before I read the passage, and, and I'll tell you what it is, first of all, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, Luke 13, 1 through 9, uh, before I read it for us, I want you to keep a couple words in mind, urgency and patience, those two words, urgency in how we ought to respond to God, but patience in how God responds to us. So let's, uh, let's look at Luke chapter 13. I'll read that Bible text for us right now. 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, but I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is God's word. Well, when, when bad things happen, when an evil ruler terrorizes people, when disasters happen, and these events are under the sovereign control of God, does that imply that this is a particular judgment for sin? Again, thinking about our lives today with this pandemic, the havoc that it has wreaked on the world, the illness, the, the death, the economic impact, is God, is God bringing judgment Well, I want you to look at at how Jesus discusses, first of all, two current events, and then what he does is give a parable to explain. Now, the the events that Jesus talks about, neither of them are outside of, they're not known, I should say, outside of this gospel. So they had local significance, but but they were historically unremarkable, as as horrific as they seem in the moment. That first event, the one that, that these people bring to Jesus' attention, It really focuses on the brutality of Pilate. He was a a Roman governor. He was was known for his brutality. And and what he did, that's that same Pilate, of course, who who put Jesus on a mock trial before giving him up to be crucified. But there were some pilgrims traveling from Galilee. That's the north of the, the, the part of Israel. They were traveling for a religious festival in Jerusalem, maybe the Passover. They were murdered at the temple by Pilate. And their own blood, as a result of that murder, was mingled in with the sacrifice that was brought with that animal. A horrific, a horrific, brutal murder. And not only that, a defilement of their bodies. So the implied question that Jesus answers is that if God allowed this to happen to people who were, in fact, engaged in some great act of religious devotion, were those people more evil than other Galileans? To the question, Jesus' answer is no. Now, he wants to strengthen his point. So Jesus follows up with his own example. Again, another example from current events. People had been working on the Tower of Siloam, and that's probably a a high place, a high section of the wall around Jerusalem, near the pool, in fact, where where Jesus had healed a man who was lame. He was laying on a a mat, and Jesus approached him and, and healed him. But at that that tower of Siloam, a horrible accident happened, and and the tower fell, killing 18 men. So Jesus asks rhetorically, were they worse offenders? Were they more evil than other people who lived in Jerusalem at the time? Because, because, well, God allowed this to happen. He he allowed that accident. Is, Is that a judgment? Again, Jesus' answer is no. What Jesus wanted to do here was make a greater point. And the point 
It stands out to us. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus saying this introduces a a great sense of urgency. There's death all around. Every day people die. It may be an accident. It may be the evil act of someone. It might be disease or something else. You could die soon. Don't perish. Repent. Repent. Well, what does Jesus mean? Repent. Now, we think of the word, turn from your sin, but looking at the events that that surround this or immediately precede this in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 12, we don't have to go back very far, Jesus had called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, those religious leaders who who had set themselves up as the righteous ones. They pretended at righteousness, but they rejected the righteous one. And through a series of parables following that that uh, pointing out of their hypocrisy, Jesus uh, shares a number of parables. And he, he taught the people what true faith looked like. That true faith that would be expressed in repentance looked like acknowledging Christ before others. It looked like not trusting in money. It looked like trusting God for basic needs and not worrying about them. It looked like having a readiness for the, for the appearance of the Christ. And so I take the point that Jesus is making is that God's judgment was already hanging over Israel. The Messiah, he, Jesus, the Messiah was among them, yet they did not believe. They did not believe. They, they, their thought about him was that he was not who he said he was. It's just as John introduced Jesus in his gospel, in the gospel of John. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, the setting of this, the timing of this, the writing of this gospel, um, Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. But that judgment upon Israel would happen in 70 AD. So maybe this is in part in mind here. Jesus wanted them to feel the urgency But that judgment of Jerusalem, that that fall of Jerusalem uh, under the the attack of Roman general Titus in 70, that would really be a a picture of an even greater spiritual judgment that would come, an eternal judgment, not just a city and a time and place on the earth, but an eternal judgment. And Jesus' words about impending judgment, they're for us today as well. Unless you repent, unless you acknowledge Jesus, unless you submit to him as the Lord that he is, unless you repent and turn away from your sin, you will perish. Jesus is pointing out the urgency of repenting. Now, that word repent simply means to think differently, to reconsider, to change your mind. So again, in this context, I take it that Jesus means unless you change your mind about him, unless you acknowledge that he is indeed the son of God who came into the world, unless you surrender to his lordship over everything in your life, you will perish. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? In fact, a message like that in our world today, that doesn't go over well. 
In our world, people want options. People want to choose their own path. They want, they want to know, I'd like one that, you know, an, a way to life that, that involves my preferences, my particular likes, one that suits my priorities. But Jesus, in this call to repentance, he gives no options. There is no alternate path. As he says in John 14:6, he is, and this is exclusive, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except by me. So what we take from this is that while you live, while you have breath, while your heart still beats, repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Do you do you feel that urgency? Death may be in the next minute. It may be in the next day. It may be in 80 years. We don't know. But a tower might fall on you. An evil ruler might have his way. While you have breath, repent. Feel the urgency. Now, as we look, uh, turn our focus to the parable Verses 6 through 9, um, to restate it really, there's a, this unfruitful fig tree. For three years it has produced nothing, no fruit. So the owner of the vineyard tells the vine dresser, cut it down, I'm done with it. It's just wasting space, it's using up space. But what the vine dresser does is he appeals for patience, just, just one more year. I'll give it focused cultivating, uh, I'll, 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 I'll fertilize it with manure, This fig tree is unrepentant Israel. But God is being patient. He is actively seeking to cultivate the fruit of repentance so that they turn in faith to Jesus. So we have the urgency, repent or perish, but on the other side, we have a picture of the great patience of God in spite of the fact of zero fruit, rebelliousness and rejection of the very Messiah, God says, we're going to give it some time. Now, a couple of truths as we seek to apply this to our own lives, as we consider our own response to Jesus. Judgment is coming. That's a certainty. But God is patiently seeking the repentance of his people. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is for unbelievers. I'm already a believer in Jesus. I've repented and I've turned to Christ in faith. Indeed, if you are truly a follower of Jesus this morning, it is because you have repented of your sin and turned to Christ. But what I want to do for our time in the word this morning, for the rest of our time. I want to spend some time thinking about what repentance looks like. So there's this urgency to repent. I want to spend some time thinking about what repentance looks like if you have truly put your faith in Jesus. This is a way to check our own hearts and, and see if we line up with, with what the scripture declares. So here's the first thing that I want to uh, draw from this, this text about repentance. And it's this. 
Repentance is an event that changes you. Repentance is an event that changes you. On uh, August 31st, 1985, Kathy and I stood in front of our own church back in Burlington, Ontario, and we made vows to one another. From that day forward, we established our own household. We no longer functioned independently. Now, it would have made a mockery of that ceremony, of that covenant, if we left that wedding reception and went our own separate ways, wouldn't it? If she chose, well, she's going to move to Montreal and me go to Calgary, that would be absurd. Of course, the event highlighting the covenant that we made before God and our family meant that everything about our lives would be different going forward. That event caused us to change our plans to make new priorities. Now, in a much, much greater way, true True repentance and faith in Jesus changes everything about our lives going forward. You see, the kind of repentance that Jesus calls us to means that he now rules over us every day. He rules over every moment of every day. There isn't a moment when we do not submit to his authority. Now, if you're a mature or maturing believer in Jesus, you get that. But, but I think you know that there are some people who profess to be Christians who do not live this way. There's a false idea. And it's been around since, since the beginning. It's the idea that you can be a child of God and yet still continue to live as if you're not. Claiming somehow association with Jesus because you believe who he is and yet your life not matching up at all to the declaration that he is Lord. I'll, I'll remind you of an occasion. This is uh, back earlier in this, chat, in this gospel. Luke, Luke asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Lord means master. Lord means I submit to you. Lord means you're in charge. Why do you give me that title? And yet, you have no regard for what I say to you. I wonder, is that you? Do you call Jesus Lord and ignore his instruction? Repentance means turning to Jesus and away from sin continually. Repentance is an event that changes you going forward. Now, what does this look like in our lives? What's, that, what's a repentant life look like? And so, Christian, this, this should be how we are marked. Repentance looks like a growing hatred for sin and a growing trust in Jesus. When you're first confronted with your need for a Savior, you feel the weight of your sin. You feel the, the judgment that's hanging over you. You feel the condemnation. And when you're awakened to faith in Christ, you realize that at the cross, he took that judgment. He took that penalty. And God's wrath for that sin was fully satisfied. And oh, what a, what a glorious release and a, and a sense of freedom. The true child of God doesn't forget that moment. The true child of God says, I was saved from my sin and from its consequence. And now as I grow in my understanding of what has been accomplished for me at the cross, 
my hatred, my loathing for the very things that put him there, that put Jesus on the cross, will grow. And my trust in him grows as well. The Apostle Paul talks about this, this, uh, this understanding of our own lives, right? Uh, Romans chapter 7. I'm going to summarize this, but, but uh, he's describing how he does not do what he wants. And what he wants is to obey Jesus. But he's, he's declaring and in effect confessing for us, I do the very thing I hate. And he says, I have the desire to do what's right, but, but not the ability to carry it out. And he's describing that struggle that Christians have. He hates his sin. And yet, he feels powerless on his own to conquer it. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What is going on here? He explains more. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, he's saying his body, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and, and making me captive to this sin that dwells in my body. But then here's the hope. See, he's, he's describing the battle. He's describing the struggle. And he has this hatred of sin. But then here's the hope. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's the good news. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, a, a believer in Jesus, one who is truly repentant, knows Sin remains. He knows there's a battle. He knows there's a war between his spirit and his flesh. And there's this growing dissatisfaction with sin, but a growing confidence in Jesus. Repentance changes you. Do you truly hate your sin? Where you are this morning, think about it. There are things that you know. There are temptations that, that seem attractive to you particularly. And each one of us is unique. We have our own weak points, things that are our tripping points. How do you feel about that? Do you hate it? Or are you kind of tucking it away and cherishing it and kind of reserving it for later? As a believer in Jesus, as someone who's truly repentant, our, our hatred for sin grows and our trust in Christ grows along with that. Uh, repentance changes you by giving you victory. Now, so here's the more good news. Victory over sin through Christ. See, if you've truly repented and turned to Christ, you actually gain victory over your sin. Another passage that is uh, an often go-to for me and a reminder it's from Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, the grace of God expressed in, in the fact that Jesus went to the cross, bringing salvation, rescue from condemnation for all who trust in him. And what else does this grace do? Training. That was beautiful. This grace, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Training that. Grace trains. Grace teaches. 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If you're truly repentant, you, you recognize this is what God has given to you in Christ. Victory over sin. And because of this, when we see what the scripture says, the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, when he exhorts them, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When, when we hear that as believers, we know through Christ those things have less of a grip on us today than they did when we first believed. I trust that that's your testimony because that's what Jesus accomplished. And repentance, repentance reveals that in us. A second major takeaway here is that repentance is a declaration of victory, not defeat. Repenting before God and turning to Christ in faith, it's a declaration of victory, not defeat. Uh, apart from the obvious differences in the way that the sports are played, uh, hockey and soccer have, have different attitudes towards um, injury or infractions in the game. So, for example, if, if in hockey you get wiped out by a, a really good check, if that's you, if you're the one receiving that and you get knocked to the ice, what, what do you do? You get up fast, shake it off, you go, that was nothing. And if you're hurting, don't let them see you hurt. You go to your bench and lick your wounds there. Soccer is a little bit different. Um, I was reminded of watching, uh, I've never been much of a fan of watching it. Uh, there's not a lot of goals happening and a lot of time. Uh, but I was watching the World Cup a couple summers ago. Uh, this is uh, back in Canada, visiting with my brother-in-law. Uh, one of the star players, don't remember what team, it doesn't matter, but he got injured and, and he was writhing and rolling on the ground. His, his teammate was dousing his shin with water. And I thought, oh no, that's a career ender. He is done for. I don't know if he'll finish the game, let alone the tournament. He is probably finished. Well, in a couple of minutes, he was walking about like nothing had ever happened. And I and I'm, what is going on here? In soccer, you, you play up the injury. You're, you're trying to basically shift blame to the other team so that they get a penalty. If you do that in hockey, it's called embellishment. And, and if you're the faker, you go to the sin bin. So what does this have to do with anything? In soccer, the path to victory is to deflect and blame another person. So he gets the, the card, Right? You fake your way into getting someone else penalized. In hockey, the path to victory is to pretend you're not hurt. Now, neither, neither of these attitudes works for sin. Genuine repentance does not seek to blame others. And what it does, it, is, it admits failure and brokenness. See, in God's economy, that's the only way to victory. Because the victory is not ours. It's Jesus' victory. Repentance is a declaration of Jesus' victory, not our defeat. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses, that's your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is the powers of the evil one, those powers that tempt you and drag you into sin. He disarmed, took away the power of the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus at the cross won victory. And your repentance is an acknowledgement of Jesus' victory over sin. He has defeated sin. So because of that, we can and must do battle against sin in our own lives. That's why Jesus called us to self-denial. He won the victory over sin's power and the eternal consequence of sin. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, the attitude of repentance, it's a way of standing in the victory of Jesus. And it's an attitude that must continue. Continued repentance is the way that we live in the victory that Jesus has achieved. Now, here's the reality. Uh, Martin Luther described our lives in Christ, the theologian, Martin Luther, Reformation theologian. Uh, there's a Latin expression, I won't share that, but it's, it effectively is this, at the same time just and sinful. So we have been declared righteous in God's sight because of the cross, but we're still sinful. If we want the daily victory over sin, we have to have the continual attitude of repentance. It's not one and done. Oh, I repented and, and I don't need to say anything. No, repentance is an attitude that continues because we still live in these, as the Apostle Paul called them, bodies of death where we battle against this sin. And every time we confess, we're claiming Jesus' victory over that consequence, over that sin. Every time we confess, we're expressing the attitude of repentance. Confession is simply the external expression of the attitude and the way that we win ultimately the battle against sin. John Owen said this, and he was referring to the battle. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Let no man think that to kill sin, let no man think to kill sin with a few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he not follow on his blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. To translate, if you don't deal the crushing blow to the snake, you'll be sorry that you ever engaged in the battle. And the same is true with sin. We must deal the crushing blow. And we do that, brothers and sisters, by continually confessing it and claiming Jesus' victory 
Give sin no place in your life. Until Jesus returns, until we're raised with new and imperishable bodies, we're going to continue this battle against sin. And if we pretend that we do not battle against sin, that we in fact sin, the Bible says, John, the apostle in his letter, says the truth isn't in us. I'll read it for you. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Confessing. It's a continual thing. Uh, One of the things, two things I'm really looking forward to following these restrictions. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting a haircut. I really want a haircut. But the second thing, of course, much greater thing I'm looking forward to is gathering in this space. But, you know, a haircut is something that you don't just do once and it's good for the rest of your life. No, I've, I have to go back every five or six weeks and get a fresh haircut. Now, the hair isn't sin. I just got to get rid of it. But sin must be dealt with continually. It's not one and done. We have to keep coming back. We have to keep coming before the Lord saying, I did this. I confess that. I understand this is an offense against you. And I, I get how this feels. I get how this feels. We think, well, I confessed it yesterday. Lord, I know. I know I already brought this one to you. And I'm embarrassed to say, well, I had that thought again. I said that thing again. I was unkind to my daughter or son. I cursed this person in my heart. I had that lustful thought. If, if we think that God has a limit, we're not understanding grace. Part of the battle is to continually come before the Lord confessing. And I know this is true. And I, I know there are times we think, oh God, God, you've, you've just heard enough from me, haven't you? But when, when, when Jesus' disciples approached him and asked him, thinking that they were being so magnanimous, Lord, uh, this is Peter, Matthew 18. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Whew, that's a lot. Seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now we're not meant to do the math here and count all of that up. The point here is, If Jesus says to his disciples, forgive every time someone confesses, then surely what he means is that every time we confess, God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. And understand, it's his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness. God never abandons us. He claims us as his own He is faithful eternally to us. So God is faithful and he is just. That means he is righteous to forgive. You see, God doesn't just brush our sin aside and say, well, don't worry about it. No, the reason he is just righteous to forgive is because he's already poured out the full fury 
of his wrath for that sin upon his son at the cross. Now, we are not to be flippant about our sin, but when we come in confession, we are claiming, we are claiming that Jesus has this. God, take my sin, make me hate it, and give me the strength not to return to it. Like a swine back to the mire or a dog back to his vomit. God, make me hate it. Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you are a person who is continuing to repent because it's evidence that you have truly repented, you will perish. Repentance is a declaration of Jesus' victory. Listen to the words from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those people who have have trusted who have had faith in Jesus, who have had faith in God for his promises. In light of that, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, I should say, and perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, endured the cross with all of our sins heaped upon him. He endured that. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our confidence. Look to Jesus. So look to Jesus. When you truly repent of your sin and turn in faith to Christ, you are stepping into enjoying his victory. Finally, repentance flows from God's mercy, from God's mercy. Mercy is simply the cancellation of a debt and the removal of a consequence. I think we all get that. Uh, The presidential pardon is to me one of the most fascinating aspects of the power of the office of the president. Every time they talk about presidential pardons, I, 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 I'm fascinated with how all of this happens. But you know, and, and perhaps you've seen this, anytime there's a discussion around who the president may choose to pardon, invariably the talking heads on the news outlets begin speculating and evaluating the worthiness of various candidates that might be considered. And without a doubt, the question is raised, does he, does she deserve mercy? Now, just think about that question. Does he, does she deserve mercy? If mercy is deserved, is it even mercy? Well, not in God's economy, no. And maybe you've experienced this. You've you've wronged someone or they wronged you. And that process of, of reconciliation involves confession of sin. But sometimes... And maybe you've done this, or maybe you've felt this. Maybe, maybe, and maybe even often, forgiveness is granted based on the sincerity that the one offended believes that the offender has. Is he really sincere? Has he groveled enough? Has he suffered enough under your displeasure? Does he feel the full depth of your offense? We often 
muddy up the whole concept of mercy that way, don't we? It's forgiveness that is granted based on something in the confessor. And if that's what it is, that's not mercy. That's merit. That's not how God shows mercy. God's mercy is what brings repentance. God's mercy brings the gift of repentance to us. And God is patient toward his people. That's what the, the, the parable that Jesus gave about the, vine, the vineyard and the, the fig tree. That vine dresser turning the soil around and, and fertilizing it with manure. God is patient with us because he is merciful. We don't presume upon that. There is urgency, but understand God is extraordinarily patient with us. Our sins, our sins deserve a swift and final sentence of eternal condemnation. Not one of us, within the sound of my voice, can make the claim that I do not deserve to be judged. All of us are guilty. But God God is patient because he is merciful. Peter says this in his second letter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. So if you've experienced the mercy of God, you will be repentant. But understand this. God has already been patient with you. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes God's mercy. But also the warning for those who reject it. Romans chapter 2. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's beautiful. But there's a warning. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So let me urge you, do not harden your heart. Don't perish. Repent now. Repent now. Yes, God is patient. But we are also meant to feel the urgency. And so if you're a believer, you already know this. Because you've repented and turned to faith in Christ, turned to Christ in faith, that has changed you. It's changed you and it's, it's made you, you hate your sin. And it's caused you to look to Jesus for continual victory over that sin. Because God is patient, has been patient with you. Your repentance 
is a way of reveling in Christ's victory over our sin and the death that comes as a result. So every time you come before the Lord in confession, you're expressing that humble dependence on what Christ has accomplished. And you're standing in confidence in what he has already done at the cross. So don't, don't hesitate to confess your sin to the Lord. And remember, your repentance is a gift from God. You repented because he was merciful. So thank him every single day for his goodness to you. If you would not count yourself a Christian, let me urge you. Let me urge you with the urgency that Jesus told his disciples and all who were listening. Death's all around. You may have a moment to live, a day or two. You don't know. While you breathe, while your heart still beats, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith. He took the full consequence of your sin. He took that judgment that belonged to you and he took it to the cross and he died in your place. And not only that, on the third day, he rose again to give you, to give you the power over sin in the present and the promise of an eternity with him where sin will never again, never again haunt you. So don't perish. Repent. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for speaking. Lord, I, I pray that um, as your people that we would have that constant attitude of repentance before you. Life's fragile. This mortal life is fragile, but eternal life is not. And so, so Father, would you prepare us Prepare us for an eternity with you. Thank you for your patience in showing mercy to us. Thank you for tilling the soil around us and giving us time to produce fruit. May each of our lives as your people reflect the, the beauty and the glory and the wonder of your grace and mercy to us. May Jesus Christ be glorified, and it's in his name we pray it. Amen.